yeah, fine, man. All righty. I don't get to see you, man. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for us to reconvene. For the 4.30 session. Dr. Byron Johnson will be uh, chairing the session and introducing our distinguished speakers. Byron, I don't think there was enough disagreement in that last panel. Now, your job is to fix that. We have people from three very different traditions here, so you can do it. Uh, I want to say how uh, honored we are uh, to have uh, with us, I notice, in our audience, and uh, yes. I want you to uh, join me in recognizing uh, an extraordinary scholar and the former president of Princeton University, Robert Goheen. Yes. We are honored, President Goheen, to have you here. Uh, Byron Johnson is uh, new to Princeton, but he is not new to uh, this area of scholarship at all, a very distinguished scholar of uh, penology and particularly the question of the faith factor in rehabilitation. Uh, he comes to uh, Princeton, to the Witherspoon Institute from the uh, University of Pennsylvania's Center for Research on Religion and Urban Civil Society, which is co-sponsoring uh, this conference. So, Byron, it's great to have you here. Thanks, Robbie. This is a little confusing. Uh, we've been planning this conference for some time, and uh, CRUX, the Center for Research on Religion and Urban Civil Society at the University of Pennsylvania, has been one of the co-sponsors. And uh, so this is kind of strange. We did not plan, though, a year ago that I would leave Penn about four weeks ago. And so um, I'm kind of representing the, the Princeton side of the table here, and it's a little uncoordinated for sure. It's a real pleasure to introduce this panel, and especially our keynote speaker, Jean Beth Gielstein. I have to believe she's a proponent of cloning because I see her everywhere. Uh, her picture, I mean, she uh, is not only um, a great scholar and prolific writer, she um, also travels like a maniac. And, uh, but it's, uh, it's so wonderful that she could be with us today. She is the Laura Spellman Rockefeller Professor of Social and Political Ethics at the Divinity School at the University of Chicago author of many books. They're listed there in your program. She's published over 200 essays. She is the co-chair of the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life in Washington, which also keeps her very busy. And it's just an honor and a privilege to introduce to you today Jean Beth Gielstein. Thank you very much for that generous introduction, and I, too, want to join Robbie in welcoming Bob Goheen. It's always great to see him. He and I serve on the board of the National Humanities Center together, so I have the privilege of seeing him a couple of times a year, but uh, that's not enough, often enough, so, Bob, it's great to see you here. I also want to thank Robbie and his, uh, Robbie George and his great staff. I don't know how Robbie manages to surround himself with such capable and gracious people, but he has thus managed. Uh, we all stand in envy of him for his staff, and I want to thank them for all the work they've done on this conference. I don't know about all of you, if you've been hanging in there all day long, and I know it's warm out, the, out in the audience, um, but you, you seem nonetheless to be relatively awake. Um, but this morning, um, uh, I'm not sure I'm the only one who was uh, listening to Roger Scruton's 
um, brilliant talk, I was nonetheless plunged into a, a deep and darkening gloom at points. Um, I know that uh, unscrupulous optimism, I believe that was the quote yeah, right. yeah. from Schopenhauer, uh, is never warranted, uh, but I think hope is. Uh, hope is one of the great theological virtues, as I'm sure you know, uh, but it is also an important political virtue. And I would characterize what you're about to hear, from me at least, and I have a hunch from our commentators as well, is a, a critical but hopeful approach uh, to some of the issues involved in thinking about uh, the engagement of religion with contemporary life. Um, let me give you a précis. When I was a kid going to the movies, they called the, these teasers. Uh, now we're supposed to say preview. But th uh, this is a teaser of what you're going to hear, just so you can keep track of the progress of the argument. Um, I'm going to begin in this way and then tell you uh, what else I'm going to do. Secularism, as you know, is a vast uh, topic. It's it's one that often invites vague abstractions and, and overreach, sort of global generalizations. So how do we grapple with it in a concrete and particular way? That, I think, is the challenge faced by everyone addressing you in this conference over today and tomorrow. Now, I'm going to distinguish, as others before me have done, uh, between secular and secularism. Um, secular derives uh, from the Latin saculum, which is a term that Augustine uses all the time in the City of God, simply to talk about temporality, to talk about historic time, uh, the space into which we have been condensed, if you will, between uh, creation and the end time. So there is nothing that seems to me inherently problematic with the notion of the secular, uh, so long as one doesn't read into that the idea that the sacred and profane must part company, and that the secular is only the realm of the profane. I don't think that is the case, and we can see the coming together of the sacred and profane in the world of historic time, in the secular. Secularism, by contrast, is something else. It is officially an outlook. It is officially an ideology. There have been a number of manifestos of secular humanism, for example, preachments of secularism. Uh, the philosopher John Dewey was uh, one of the co-authors of one such manifesto uh, in our own culture. Now, secularism is officially, then, a position, an ideology, that discounts faith as a form of unreason or as a kind of primitive stance from which we are slowly Evolving, and we will at one point have moved away from it entirely. That's part of the whole secularization hypothesis, which has more or less come a cropper, as I'm sure you know, because things aren't quite working out the way that hypothesis predicted. But secularism was part of that secularization hypothesis. And part of the secularization or secularism as an ideology thesis was that civic life should revolve around principles that are severed entirely from faith. Now, one hallmark of this insistence uh, in the past several decades has been that when religious believers enter the public arena, and religious believers is usually a place marker for Christians, and um, for clear and obvious reasons in American culture, because fully at this point in time, 83% of Americans self-identify themselves as Christians at one point or another, which is, of course, 
less than at one point ident- thus identify themselves. Nevertheless, it's still a very high number. Um, so when they say when religious people enter the public arena, they largely mean Christians, that they must avoid all religious terms um, and concepts and categories. Now, what I'm going to be arguing is that although we have a secular government in the sense that church and state are kept separate, we are not and have never been governed theocratically. Ours is by no means, and never has been, a thoroughly secularized society. So I'm going to say something about that. Then I'm going to go over a a position, criticize a position that I call liberal monism, liberal because it derives from one important strand in liberal political philosophy, not that it exhausts the world of liberalism, because it certainly does not, but it's that particular strand that is especially keen to restrict uh, how we speak in public. I'm going to then move from that to um, a rehearsal of some of the logics of engagement that Christians have offered within a world, a, a pluralistic world, such as American civil society, that includes believers and non-believers uh, and others who are believers but are not Christians. Go over some of those rules of engagement. Uh, I'm going to indicate which one I find preferable. And then to conclude, I'm going to ask, reverse the usual kinds of questions. Rather than asking, which is the way this question is usually put, how can or should politics accommodate religion, I'm going to ask instead what sort of politics does religion require in order to play the role that religious commitments demand of religious believers? Now, a number of my colleagues have begun with some very good stories and jokes. I'm afraid I don't have any. Uh, So I'm just going to have to start out uh, with apologies (laughs) for not having uh, some some laugh lines here at the beginning. Let Let me set the stage in this way. In the matter of the entanglement of religion with American political life, the salient question is not whether, but how. God talk, at least as much as rights talk, is the way America speaks and has spoken. And American politics, I would submit to you, is indecipherable if it is severed from the interplay and the panoply of America's religions. Most importantly, as I've already said, indicated uh, Christianity, historically Protestant Christianity, with um, Catholicism uh, coming into its own, if you will, um, over the last uh, century or so. Now, American democracy from its inception was premised on the enactment of projects that were a complex intermingling of religious and ethical and political imperatives The majority of Americans were religious seekers and believers who saw in communal liberty the freedom to be religious as they saw fit rather than freedom from religion. That being the case, it's not surprising that such a huge chunk of American juridical life has been devoted to sorting out the often inaptly named church-state debate. In a less religious society, this would be a far less salient issue. Now, with that, as a few sort of introductory comments, let's go to the first section of my discussion, um, religion, colon, public, or private, question mark. Now, although church and state are kept separate, ours is not, as I already indicated, has never been a theocracy. 
or a nation with an established religion, religion and politics have always mutually constituted one another in ways direct and indirect. This is a theme advanced by Alexei de Tocqueville. He's already been evoked today. He's almost inevitably evoked in the course of such discussions in his masterwork, Democracy in America. Now, those of you who've had occasion to look at Tocqueville will recall that he proclaimed that the religiously formed and shaped democratic optimism and egalitarianism and the associational enthusiasm he witnessed when he toured these United States during the Jacksonian era were something new under the political sun. And he discusses the action of religion on politics and politics on religion. So in his masterwork, Tocqueville puts into play a number of important categories. For our purposes, the most important being the believer and the citizen as well as the church and the state. Now, the terrain in which believer and citizen meet most of the time is that realm of institutional and associational life we call civil society. It's important at this point, here at the outset, that we not make the big mistake of mapping the rigidities of the church-state debate as sort of juridical concepts onto the far more fluid and complex and nuanced world of religion and politics. Church, state, and religion and politics are not identical. That church and state are separate does not mean that ours is a thoroughly secularized society. As I already indicated, isn't now, never has been. Now, in March 2000, the 96th American Assembly met to consider religion and American political life. My hunch is that most of you have never heard of the American Assembly. It is a complex institution that has been in operation for over half a century. And the purpose of the American Assembly, which meets once a year usually, is to explore matters. There's always a given topic to explore matters that lie at the heart of American political life and culture. Now, as one of the leaders of this particular assembly, the 96th Assembly, I was part of the troika that organized it. It was my job to gain the widest possible representation of America's religions and to help to steer this diverse group toward a statement that we can all agree to and sign on with on the appropriate role of religion in American political life. Fifty-seven men and women representing 16 different American religions attended. And I would like to quote for you four sentences from the document that everyone signed on with at the culmination of this intense three-day meeting. Those of us who draft this, drafted this document put in an all-nighter um, and then presented it to the Assembly after two and a half days of discussion. And this, for our purposes, is the most important paragraph. We reject the notion that religion is exclusively a private matter relegated to the homes and sacred meeting places of the faithful, primarily for two reasons. First, the religious convictions of individuals cannot be severed from their daily lives. People of faith in business, law, medicine, education, and other sectors should not be required to divorce their faith from their professions. Second, many religious communities have a rich tradition of constructive social engagement, and our nation benefits from their work in such varied areas as social justice, civil rights, and ethics. And that's the end of the paragraph. 
Now, these few sentences suggest a logic for engagement in the civic realm, a logic that clashes with one dominant strand of argument that I think most of the time has very little to do with how people actually talk and act and react on the ground. Gene Rivers likes to talk about back on planet Earth. Um, so back on planet Earth, um, when people gather together to discuss whatever it is that has brought them together, uh, the restraints of the position I'm going to unpack for you, I think, tend not to apply. Nevertheless, these restraints have entered into American jurisprudence, certainly into academic uh, thinking, and I would say into the logic of some of those who participate in American civil society. I'll give you a couple of examples in a moment. Now, the central philosopher here, uh, and the position I'm going to criticize, uh, and I'm calling it liberal monism, as I've already indicated, is uh, the late John Rawls and his work, his very important work, um, including his insistence that if you are religious, your convictions need to be translated into a strictly secular civic idiom if you are to take part in political deliberation. Now, part of Rawls's complicated argument, and a good bit of the complexity drops out often in the subsequent work of those one can call Rawlsians, part of the argument uh, is that there is a single vocabulary for political discussion, some very abstract notion of deliberative reason. This argument, as I indicated, has made its way into jurisprudential thought uh, and logic. Now, Rawls's argument is part of this tradition of liberal monism, that strand in liberal political philosophy. Uh, let me just note, before I say more about it, that this position does cut against the grain of American political history in some pretty significant ways, to the extent that it pushes to try to remove the public realm of all markers, uh, symbols, emblems, if you will, of religious faith. The United States Constitution, for example, um, or under the United States Constitution, unlike, for example, the terms under which Jewish residents of the nation were admitted into the polity in France as citizens, had not required, and here my example is uh, the Jewish people, people of the Jewish faith, had not required that Jews, in large part, uh, restrain, give up, relinquish the communal dimensions of their faith that had found expression in and through uh, Hebrew schools, communally enforced dietary rules and regulations, and distinctive dress in public uh, as the price, if you will, of civic admission. And just to underscore these rather draconian requirements, Napoleon, who uh, first made this move, called leaders of the uh, French Jewish community together for this meeting on a Saturday so that they would be obliged to violate their Sabbath in order to attend the meeting. Instead, in the United States, uh, confessional pluralism, if you will, and social pluralism and political pluralism are all linked in some very important ways, fruitfully linked, uh, as religious differences were, in fact, afforded public markers and forms of communal identification were not prohibited. Now, one reason that America's religious institutions remain the heart of American civil society, a fact that it surprised some of the social scientists over the last decade or so who have done work in this area, uh, lies in the fact that religion in America was never required to go into hiding and to utterly privatize itself. 
Now, for the first 150 years of the American Republic, primary responsibility for adjudicating thinking about religious rights and liberties was lodged in the states. And attempts to create a national law on religion that would apply to all of the states and would be enforceable in the federal courts, those efforts were defeated. So the federal government, through the courts, got into the act of adjudicating religion, if you will, in a big way, only over the last half century. And a constitutional position emerged, and I'm always loath to talk about constitutional positions with Robbie sitting nearby because he knows so much more about this than I do, so he will correct me if I go wrong. But this position I'm is one I'm going to call strong separationism, and I'm going to link it to the philosophic position that I have called liberal monism. Now, although this position, again, one that pushes to strip public life of religious symbols, signs, markers, and even speech has never held consistent sway. It figures in the thinking of those who, whether in law or out, not only assume church-state separation, but seek a thoroughly secularized society in which religion has been made invisible to public life. This is certainly the direction. I promised you two examples of groups that are working to that end at present. Uh, one of them is the current American Civil Liberties Union, which is pursuing a kind of relentless effort at this point uh, to strip uh, the civil society of religious symbols and markers and displays, which is, a, it would be interesting to do a kind of sociology of the ACLU and find out why that has become such a, a singular focus. Another group that pushes in this direction is a group that now calls itself Americans United for the Separation of Church and State, although it began, as I'm sure many of you know, as a group called Protestants and Other Americans United for the Separation of Church and State, as it was in it quite explicitly and even um, avidly anti-Catholic organization. Uh, and they, too, are again trying to map the logic of church-state separation onto all of civil society. Um, where the world of religion and politics has met throughout our history. And one extreme example of this would be, and I don't know how this came out. I happened to be in Denver when this was happening. Didn't even have the heart to quite follow it through. It seemed so draconian. Um, it was after the Columbine, the horrible Columbine High School massacre. And you may recall that, that one of the young women uh, shot dead on that day. The story is, and there were some ear witnesses who said they heard her say this, was that um, she had been asked by one of the shooters whether she believed in Jesus, and she said yes and was then gunned down. Uh, there were plans to set up markers, memorials, inside the Columbine School to each of the children murdered. And the family of this young woman named Cassie Bernal uh, wanted her plaque to include a, a Bible quote, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the uh, head of and the local organization of Americans United for the Separation of Church and State said they were prepared to sue if this went forward because to have this religious statement inside the public school uh, constituted an unacceptable uh, fusion of church and state. I don't think there's anything in any of the decisions that have been made which, which suggests that that would constitute some kind of terrible violation. But that's the direction that the position I'm talking about goes. 
Let me say a little bit more about this position, because it consists of a number of parts, not just the juridical wing, if you will. It also holds that all institutions internal to a democratic society should conform in their internal organization to a single representational authority principle, and that a pall of suspicion uh, falls on all organizations, all entities that do not subscribe to that way of organizing themselves. I think we can understand a good bit of the animus against the Catholic Church uh, if we think about this requirement because of the Church's internal hierarchical structure and organization. Uh, as well, the position insists that there is, as I've already said, a single standard of what counts as reason and deliberation and a single vocabulary of political discussion. And within this framework, religion, as I indicated, is usually discounted as a form of ear or a rationalism, as special pleading, or as a search for some form of unassailable epistemological privilege. Citizens who are believers are obliged to translate the views supported by their religious beliefs into a purportedly neutral civil language. And only in this way, claim liberal monists, can America achieve some kind of workable civic consensus. Now, if you refract these concerns from the standpoint of religious belief, the problem starts to look quite different. And what becomes evident is a problem with narrowing the purview of politics, actually narrowing pluralism rather than with bringing religious commitments to politics. But it is, as you know, religion that is put on the defensive consistently in this regard. In his book, The Descent of the Governed, the distinguished constitutional scholar Stephen Carter, many of you know some of his books, I'm sure, reminds us that tolerance is, quote, not simply a willingness to listen to what others have to say. It is also a resistance to the quick use of state power to force dissenters and the different to conform. That's the end of the quote. Now, as an example of this phenomenon, Carter in his book, and you can decide for yourself where you think this is a good example of the phenomenon, but it's his, uh, points to pro-life protest and the ways in which attempts to quash this form of public advocacy have proceeded apace with the blessing of the courts in applying RICO racketeering statutes to a form of political and social <clears throat> protest to pro-life dissent. Now, again, whether you accept this example as valid or not, as, an, as a valid instance of the phenomenon Carter decries, his more general point is that if we set up as paradigmatic the view that the nation must be morally more or less the same, uh, plurality is denied and community autonomy is eroded. And all of this is traceable, at least in major part, to the view, those of us who are political philosophers will remember studying this uh, in full, the view that human beings cannot embrace simultaneously dual or more loyalties that may at times come into conflict. This was an explicit worry in the work of such important social contractarians as Jean Locke, John Locke and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was, as usual, extreme in this regard. Um, and it's a worry that carries forward even now. Those of you who recall Rousseau's uh, classic, The Social Contract, will recognize what I'm saying immediately in this book, 
uh, he argues that in order to sustain a polity, you need a civil religion. It has to be a civil religion. It has to underwrite civic life. That must be its explicit purpose. And he said Christianity is a lousy civic religion because it doesn't seem to want to do that with, uh, in a secure and certain way. It puts people in conflict with themselves, he says, uh, with Roman Catholicism being the most palpably awful of all in his example. And then he goes on, by the way, and you might find this interesting uh, in light of our, our many current issues we must reflect on. He extols um, what he calls the wise system of Mohammed because he said he puts together both heads of the eagle. He, puts, he, he has a theocratic system, and there is great wisdom in that. So he's calling for some system that fuses these forms of authority so you don't have any possible conflict between them. Well, that's not the view that dominated, has ever dominated in the American Republic. Uh, rather than thinking of our many loyalties, in Rousseau's case, as enriching us, the thought is that dual loyalties to a religious faith and to our polity threaten to undermine political loyalty. So you're demanding then a kind of total monistic loyalty in which religion must undergird political loyalty. Now, if you thought this argument was dead, I would ask you to consider, whatever your position on the war in Iraq was, some of the disturbing arguments um, that surfaced in the run-up to the Iraq war that included sort of vague notions, uh, intimations, that Jewish Americans, with a loyalty to their faith that extended to concern with the fate of the state of Israel, were for religious reasons pushing America into a war against Iraq. Now, what is this, again, but a demand that our loyalties be monistic rather than plural and complex? All right, next section. Um, how should we talk the monist, the monist demand? Now, the position that I call liberal monism, and which I trace restrictions on religious belief and categories and political debate and strict separationism and jurisprudence, views religion always and everywhere as a total set of comprehensive authoritative claims. And goes on to say, because the claims of politics, law and politics, are similarly authoritative, comprehensive, and total, there's bound to be tension, there's likely to be a clash, and something's got to give. For if the writ of each extends to all aspects of human life and makes total claims, each aspires to take up all the space, so to speak, then the upshot uh, is going to be this rather dire uh, scenario that gets represented in such discussions. So the conclusion is that if you want liberal politics, if you've characterized things in this way, by liberal I mean the way in which you know, separation of powers and the kinds of debates that we're used to, uh, then law and politics has to be supreme and has to decide whether it wants at any given point to accommodate the other, to accommodate religious belief. And it will accommodate with the sort of proviso that religion must behave itself. Uh, now, this was, again, lest you think this is an exaggeration of a position, this was precisely the position taken, and she acknowledged her indebtedness to John Rawls, by the Chief Justice of the Canadian Supreme Court. As you know, the Canadians decided they needed a Supreme Court, too. 
and I've had one for, what, a quarter of a century now, something like that? At any rate, uh, the Chief Justice of the Canadian Supreme Court, in remarks that she delivered in Montreal, uh, to which I responded, and that exchange will be published soon. Now, the modern regime of religious toleration derives in large part from John Locke's justly famous works on toleration. Um, Now, in these justly famous works, Locke, who is not the kind of extreme thinker that Rousseau is, nonetheless, Locke draws up a map separating the world he calls the world of soulcraft, or the world of religion, from statescraft, the realm of government, or what he calls the magistracy. A person can be a member of each of these worlds so long as religion means primarily freedom of conscience rather than any open institutional loyalty to a religious body that in fact engages the society and all of its institutions. Now Locke argued that under such terms, all religions, uh, and he's meaning all uh, Western religions for the most part, save atheism and Roman Catholicism could be tolerated. The atheists could not be tolerated because they would not take an oath on the Bible, so they were untrustworthy. Catholics could not be tolerated because under the terms of tolerance, as he characterizes them, uh, Catholics exhibit that dangerous double loyalty. They are loyal to a strong church. So it's the institutional presence and authority of the Catholic Church that seemed to unhinge Locke on this question. And that, of course, and, and the history of dogmatic battles in Europe and so on that he knew only too well. So, a strong public presence and witness for religion, no. Private freedom of conscience. He says, well, yes, we'll tolerate that. And not only will we tolerate it, but this keeping soulcraft off separate is infinitely superior to any other mode of religious expression. So you can certainly extend Locke's criticism of Roman Catholicism to many other religions. Obviously, it would include Islam and so on. Now, in the words of one of America's leading constitutional lawyers on the free exercise of religion, Michael McConnell, quote, Locke's exclusion of atheists and Catholics from toleration cannot be dismissed as a quaint exception to his beneficent liberalism. It follows logically from the ground on which his argument for toleration rested. If religious freedom means nothing more than that religion should be free so long as it is irrelevant, it does not mean very much. I'm I'm sorry, I missed out. Relevant to public life, it does not mean very much. Yet this, he insists, is precisely what the regime of liberal toleration uh, pushes toward and under the terms of monism requires. Now, I'm not going to rehearse the requirement that persons with religious convictions need to eliminate those convictions as part of their deliberative public speech. Uh, Just going to go on to rehearse with you several religious responses to this claim, to this requirement. All right? Uh, There are four of them, and I'm going to go over them briefly. The first three are positions that I do not endorse in toto, although one of which I certainly um, um, endorse um, well, you'll find out how I endorse it when I get there. All right, the, the, first, the first position. Now, remember, these are people with religious convictions responding to these very uh, severe restraints 
on religion's, religion's presence to the public world. The first holds that the fullness of religious belief, commitment, and witness must enter the public sphere and precisely on religious terms. You have to do that, and you have to do that every time you enter the public sphere. They, this has nothing to do with the legal establishment of religion, but it has to do with the conviction that religion is undermined if persons with, with religious commitments are compelled to engage in any effort to translate those commitments into a civic idiom. Uh, and in an essay on the subject, I tagged this position, full-bore Christian politics. Uh, it assumes that the entire display of religious reason-giving is not only appropriate, but may even be necessary on every issue that comes up. And that's one of the positions that I uh, find problematic. The second I don't find so much problematic as, as um, um, difficult to endorse if it becomes daily fair. And you'll see why I'm saying that. A position that may look similar, but it's quite distinct. And I call this the prophetic witness position. Now, within this frame, no one pushes for an undiluted Christian politics, nor seeks Christian saturation of ordinary, everyday political discourse and action where all matters are concerned. Rather, persons religious respond to extraordinary situations from the fullness of their religious commitments. And one can think here of religiously inspired abolitionism historically, of, of, of Martin Luther King and his great speeches, and I think we may hear more about that from, from Gene Rivers, because all of these speeches, as Stephen Carter has also reminded us recently, were also sermons. It would be an act of the most severe restraint on civic speech to require of King retroactively that he drop all religious references to scripture in his speeches. His speech wouldn't exist without the cadences and specific references drawn from religion in the I Have a Dream speech, most famously the prophet Amos. Now, whether, f and again, I think this prophetic uh, stance, to the extent that every time someone's religious convictions say, is wrapping himself or herself in the mantle of the prophetic stance, that you lose the gravitas that ought to be attendant upon this position. Now, whether full-bore Christian politics or prophetic witness, however, the requirement from the direction of liberal monism would be that these positions are unacceptable or suspect as public discourse because they mount arguments that are critically unassailable, being based on private or special revelation. But this is wrong, as anybody with religious beliefs understands. Um, I mean, Andrew Jackson is supposed to have said once, that political discussions and debates uh, and agitation didn't bother him nearly so much as, as arguments in the Presbyterian Church. Um, if, you, if you think that a particular claim, re religious claim of, uh, based on religion is unassailable, just look at how these are likely to be assailed from other believers. That is, they're open to debate and interpretation. They are not advanced from a position of epistemological incorrigibility in large part because certainly within the Christian tradition, you find a tradition that is one of contested interpretations. So for every <coughs> Christian position on public policy X or Y, there's going to be another Christian position that differs. Uh, to be sure, many religious believers forget this, but when they do, they are more likely to chide those who disagree with them for being bad Christians rather than being terrible citizens. And there's some of that that goes on too, and it's not particularly 
savory story, but there you have it. A third religious response uh, to the demands that religious speech be cleaned up before it goes out in public is more or less along these lines. Well, if that's the way they want it, we'll retreat into our own enclaves and live out there a faithful life in a community of faith. Now, this position downgrades citizenship And active participation is even considered potentially idolatrous because it invites loyalty and faithfulness to something other than church. Now, I call this position, one clearly that I reject, radical dualism. It is in its own way an even stronger dualism than that affected, at least at times, by the regime of liberal toleration. But it is self-imposed rather than being state-mandated. Now, the fourth position, and my preferred alternative. I don't have a tag for it. It's a position that is internally complex. It calls upon citizens who are also believers to offer a nuanced assessment of the way religion enters civic discourse, depending on the nature of the issues involved. That is, you have to ask, what are the stakes? Depending on what arenas or spheres of human social existence are affected and how, who are the key players, How should those implicated in any given situation address the issues at stake and go on to express their concerns to their fellow citizens? That's the question. And my working assumption is that in a pluralistic society such as our own, with its politics of modulation, negotiation, and compromise, most often the engagement of religious believers with politics does not represent some earth-shattering dilemma. The lines are not drawn in the sand most of the time. I also assume that it is not the task of Christianity or any religion in a society premised on non-establishment and free exercise to underwrite any exhaustive political ideology, agenda, or platform. Indeed, when and where the issues call for a decisive break of Christianity or any set of religious beliefs with secular power or policy, politics as usual, at least on that issue, is likely to have already disappeared. This would be an issue on which the usual politics of compromise and modulation doesn't seem uh, to to be available. Now, on nearly all issues, believers with other citizens um, are obliged to continue the argument to participate in discourse, to find ways to determine whether any common ground is to be found most of the time. This means that most of the time, the fullness of religious reason-giving in political life is neither required nor desirable. Suppose that I support protection of endangered species because of creation doctrine. God created the earth and all its wonders and said it was good. And this includes all the beautiful creatures that we share our world with. Am I obliged to lay out an exegesis of Genesis in order to indicate my support for a bill extending protection to endangered species? I doubt that I'm obliged to do that. There are other ways to make the case. Do I think it would be wrong for someone to do that? to say, this is the reason why I support the protection of endangered species, because I accept the creation story. In fact, there were a group of evangelical Christians who did precisely that in a a kind of uh, 
demonstration in the Senate Rotunda when the endangered species bill was coming up for renewal. Rather flabbergasted the Washington Press Corps, but, uh, but, but that was the, that was the argument they made. So I don't think it would be wrong. I think there are other ways to make the argument, but I certainly wouldn't want to say to these folks, you should shut up unless you think of another way to talk about it. Um, there are other issues, um, issues that are upon us now. Um, abortion has been referenced a number of times, euthanasia, cloning, uh, capital punishment, that may demand going all the way down in one's argument, if you will. That, that is, I think each of us um, probably has a, a number of reasons, not just one, for why we endorse or uh, refuse to endorse some particular view or policy. That is, one may be obliged in such circumstances to offer the fullness of religious reason giving, including the theological anthropology at work in one's stance. Human being, I believe human beings are created in the image of God and given the imago dei, uh, I believe that certain things follow from that. If you are committed to the dignity of the human person, and a certain understanding of human rights on theological grounds, uh, perhaps not exclusively theological grounds, but these are for you part of the, maybe even lie the heart of the matter. It strikes me as a draconian and prejudicial demand for others to insist that you excise the depths of your beliefs from the reasons you proffer publicly for the stance that you take. Now, there are times when persons religious will want to make it absolutely clear where they stand and why. Uh, one should hope that these reasons are going to be relatively rare in a relatively well-ordered democratic civil society. But it is, and it is also the case when one articulates a religious belief and brings it to civic life, this does not mean that a particular public policy is attached to that moral mandate with superglue. That is, you can share a fundamental set of beliefs and then have major differences on how best to honor those in the ways in which you think about what ought to be done and what public policy ought to look like. That is, persons with religious convictions may agree on the rightness or wrongness of something, but disagree on how that can best be brought to law and public policy. All right, next section, and um, how are we doing? All right, I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. And this is called, uh, How Do We Talk or Let's Get Real? Um, democratic politics, most of the time, is a pretty rough and tumble affair. There is a complex dialectic at work at all times that never arrives at some grand synthesis. One of the, the, my favorite comments, I mean, this is the kind of comment that could redeem a whole life, as far as I'm concerned, was when uh, Václav Havel, I hope you know who he is, uh, the president just stood down of the Czech Republic, first president after the liberation of 1989, and he was trying to do two things in his uh, inaugural as president of the Czech Republic and some of his subsequent statements. One was to continue to lift up the enthusiasm and the hope, uh, the rejoicing that people had, given the collapse of the authoritarian bureaucratic structure that they had been compelled to live under for so many years, years that the Czechs called the frozen time. 
But he also wanted to alert them to the fact that they had a long, tough row ahead of them, that you have this wonderful moment, but then something else follows. So he said, my fellow citizens, we have now entered the long tunnel at the end of the light. You have the light, and then you enter that long tunnel. Now, citizens, so Democrat politics is that long tunnel. You're just, you're just in it. <clears throat> citizens variously located engage one another through a culture of democratic argument, sort things out as people tend to do in an untidy way. The resort to courts, or to moral philosophers for that matter, um, should probably be a last resort, not the first move in this dialectic. Issues of religious and political importance that can be worked out informally become far more difficult to sort out if one group or another brings a test case and seeks some kind of controlling precedent. In such cases, the battle lines harden and the appeal has to ongoingly be made to the courts because you're now dealing with a court-sanctioned precedent of some kind. Similarly, to hew strictly to the terms of liberal monism, that is to insist that there is some meta-language of deliberation that one must repair to, uh, imposes a highly artificial and unacceptable constraint on political argument and its rules of engagement. Now, most of the time, as I've already suggested, total claims are not at stake in these matters from the religious side, but rather an attempt to promote or to defend a religiously derived vision of social justice or protection of all persons without distinction as part of a normative vision for civil society rather than as one item of a particularist credo that the believer wants to map in a total way over all of society, whether they, whether they share one's beliefs or not. This makes it all the more important that civil authority not circumscribe the boundaries of discursive rules of political engagement in severe and a priori ways. <clears throat> the goods at stake are not best understood as totalistic religious goods versus some contrary set of total non-religious goods, but as competing understandings of a public good variously derived. The rare case, again, is or rare cases are those in which um, religious conscience and society's values as manifested in the rule of law comprise opposite ends of the spectrum. Again, assuming a relatively well-ordered um, civil society characterized by non-establishment and free exercise. The far more common case puts belief and law, religion and politics together and finds them tussling until some modus vivendi is worked out. So why then, and I'm, I'm starting to, this is the last, we're really in the last, um, well, 10 minutes or so here. Why then has liberal monism proven to be so attractive to academic scholars in political philosophy and to a strong segment of those in jurisprudence. Here's a suggestion. Contemporary distrust, even contempt for organized politics and public religion often go hand in hand. Um, as you know, politics is very ill thought of uh, by many of those who write about how it ought to be conducted. Both involve public expression collectivities of persons involved in a shared enterprise, rules and convictions, and sometimes hard-hitting hard encounters. That we seem not to have the stomach for either suggests that our capacity for democratic debate 
is growing ever more anemic. A preference for getting things tidied up, both in argument and through the courts, bespeaks this distaste for politics itself. And to me, this further suggests that we are not doing a very good job of social and political and religious formation, preparing future citizens and believers for a world in which there are disagreements, there are decisions to be made, and you cannot and should not tell people of religious convictions to keep those convictions to themselves. Religion in all its complexity and plurality plays a major role in asking and in trying to answer the most important questions. What kind of people are we? What sort of place is this? What do we hope for? So let's turn in the concluding comments here, the usual way of framing the question around. The usual way of framing it, remember, is how can or should politics accommodate religion? What is acceptable and not acceptable from the political side where the public presence and voice of religion is concerned? Do we permit religion to play a robust role or ought we? That, that's the way the questions are usually put. Now, theologian Robin Lovin, L-O-V-I-N, has argued recently that there is a very hypothetical and abstract quality to this way of putting things. And he suggests that instead of looking at how things actually play themselves out, the way these questions or these questions flow from an attempt to move to some kind of meta-plane and ask what is required in order that a sort of cleaned-up version of democratic discourse can go forward. Now, he says, how about if we do this? Let's frame the questions from the point of view of religion, where it might go like this. What sort of politics does religion require in order to play the role that religious commitments demand? Perhaps the problem, in other words, certainly in the positions I've been analyzing and criticizing, is a too narrow understanding of politics. Now, I cannot do justice to Levin's complex argument here, but he does something quite refreshing. He asks us to look at how people actually talk when they go public. What do people say? How do they make their arguments? Is there really some abstract language of public reason that properly functioning citizens in a democratic society avert to in political discussion? If you go seeking an answer to that query, you will find that our political discussions are as various as our political participants. All manner of identities and commitments and concerns are brought forward on issues of unusual gravity and moment. Nearly everyone without exception speaks of a public good or common weal, religious and non-religious persons alike. Everyone who goes public embraces a set of practical concerns unless his or hers, hers position, his or her, I guess, not hers, position, is prophetic witness to a sin of great magnitude in a moment in a country's history when calling attention to that, like Jim Crow, de jure segregation, seems much more important than mere incremental change. But I would submit to you that the minimally level-headed person most of the time asks, how do I get a marginally better outcome? How can we make things a bit better? How can I best advance my case? Who's persuadable and how? What am I prepared to compromise on? What's rock bottom and I'm not going to be budged? Religious and non-religious citizens alike do this. Now, within a framework associated with Augustinianism or recently Reinhold Niebuhr, the person religious sees the interaction of religion and politics as a continuing tension 
in which religious judgments are always in danger of being dismissed or ridiculed or even persecuted, but in which religion nevertheless provides the critical self-limitation that keeps a political system from overreaching and overconfidence, from making it, from sacralizing, if you will, its own projects. Now, a desire to be politically effective means that one rarely offers religious reasons as the exclusive reasons for one's stance. And Levin suggests, although he hasn't done this work, that if you were to go through and evaluate the ways in which religious bodies through their primary documents and entreaties actually enter the political arena, you would find them addressing themselves to all citizens without distinction, as the uh, social encyclicals say, to all persons of goodwill, as well as to their co-religionists. Now, the upshot is that the demand that religious persons clean up their act is largely unnecessary because most of the time persons' religion, religious offer a panoply of reasons for why they favor or oppose some policy or anticipated course of action, not all of them religious, the reasons. Indeed, most of the time, most of the reasons are not exclusively religious. In addition, the demand is unfair because it places a burden on 90% of the American population who identify themselves as belonging to one faith commitment or other, places a burden on them to strip themselves of any language of religious conviction if they would participate in political life. And Lovin suggests that any survey of the terms on which religious people enter the public square suggests that the interaction between religious reasons and public reasons are in fact very complex, that people not religious people not only bring religious arguments into public discourse, they bring a religious evaluation of the nature of that discourse itself. Now, one enters political life as a citizen. One may be a citizen with religious convictions. So these convictions go along with you as you stride into the public square. Just as the fact that you are black or white male or female, with or without children, able-bodied or with a disability from Mississippi or Minnesota, like rock and roll or revile it. I happen to like, well, classic rock and roll I like. Um, that All of that goes with you as well. Now, these particular facts about us help to determine who we are, how we think, what we care about, how we argue. And this is as it should be. The implication of my argument for civic and liberal education is that it makes absolutely no sense to reduce the desired diversity that we all talk about to gender, race, or ethnicity, or sexual orientation alone, but to view strongly held religious convictions as a threat rather than as an intrinsic part of American pluralism in all its messy glory. Now, I've had many experiences over the years, some of them recent, and I told a few students about it last night, dinner in which I was told in a rather hushed in rather hushed tones that this or that student group should not be included in a list, not be permitted to be a registered uh, recognized student organization, RSO, because they were religious in nature and would use their meetings to try to convert people. And I would ask, well, how are they going to try to do this? Uh, do they tie people down? And, you know, read scriptural verses 24 hours a day with bright lights glaring in their faces and food or, and water withheld. Um, is that what they're going to do? No, they do what we all do. They use speech and force of argument and example. That's what students do. 
and student organizations and student branches of Amnesty International or People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals or on and on and on and on. Now, our precious freedoms include the freedom not only to believe, but to try to persuade others of your beliefs. So we should practice what we preach on college campuses as well as in the wider civic world. How do we talk? Well, listen. Um, endless varieties and intonations and accents and harmonies and punctuations and pauses of American speech are really quite extraordinary. Civic formation is in part a way to help us become aware of these multiple idioms, including their religious variety, and to appreciate them, with some exceptions, as ways of living complex human lives, while at the same time articulating visions of how it is we can come to know a good in common that we do not and cannot know alone. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jean. Um, you're in for a real treat uh, for our next two panelists. Timothy George is the founding dean of Beeson uh, Divinity School of Sanford University. He's also the senior editor of Christianity Today. He holds a bachelor's degree from University of Tennessee Chattanooga and graduate degrees from Harvard University. He serves on the board of Prison Fellowship as well as the Center for Catholic and Evangelical Theology and Books and Culture. He's written a number of books on theologians and theology, and it's a pleasure to invite Timothy George to come respond. Thank you very much. I'm honored to be a part of this conference and to respond to this uh, stimulating paper by Professor Jean Betke Elstein whom I'm meeting for the first time at this conference, though we are associated in several common projects, and whose writings I've long admired, not only for their clarity of thought and general persuasiveness, but also for their wit and wisdom and sheer menschlichkeit. And uh, we saw a little bit of that in this paper today. Now, those of us who have read uh, some of Professor Elstein's work will not be surprised by what she has told us today. She is a person of deeply Christian and Augustinian instincts and with evident appreciation, I think, for Reinhold Niebuhr, whom she mentions once in this paper. She's also enamored, I don't think that's too strong a word, with a vision of Alexis de Tocqueville and his appreciation for the genius of the American experiment. Disestablished religion, yet vibrant religion. Vibrant in part precisely because it has been disestablished that it has not been corrupted by establishment. In letting go of official power, the churches were forced to be more dynamic, more appealing, more competitive, we might say, than when they just lazily enjoyed the benefits of the public trough. And this is a good thing, she thinks, both for American democracy, uh, but also for the vitality of religious life in our country and our culture. Tocqueville, of course, wrote in the aftershock of the French Revolution, whose alliance of a corrupt church with a corrupt state had been forever shattered in the Place de la Concorde with the fall of the blade of the guillotine. As one of the French revolutionaries put it, the last king would be strangled with the guts of the last priest. 
And from those cataclysmic events of 1789, faith and freedom were severed, and Tocqueville himself put it this way, In France, I had always seen the spirit of freedom and the spirit of religion marching in opposite directions, but in America, I found they were united and that they reigned in common in the same country. But the nature of that union, uh, Tocqueville talked about, was never simple or even easily explained and has become increasingly problematic in the evolving hermeneutics of God talk and rights talk in American public discourse. This union, perhaps always fragile, has become further frayed by those who think disestablishment, separation of church and state must also mean the divorce, the severance of religion and politics. And this is the burden of Professor Elstein's scathing but not strident uh, critique and polemic against what she calls liberal monism. The view that says that either religious folks should not enter the public square or if they do, they should keep their mouths shut about those things they cherish most. To speak about God in the public discourse is at best insensitive and uncouth, sort of like discussing the kind of birth control one uses at a nice dinner party. We just wouldn't do that. Uh, but at worst, uh, it could be threatening and even dangerous to the common good. This has resulted in an ideology of secularism. Here I recall the beginning clarification of Professor Elstein's paper between the secular and secularism, which she thinks rightly, I believe, is alien to our constitutional traditions as well as to our national character and to the nature of religion itself. So she urges Christians to resist these strictures, and I assume she would urge, it's not too clear in the paper, but I assume she would urge liberal monists to reconsider their position. She herself seems to advocate the confessional pluralist position, where people bring their most deeply held religious convictions, whatever they are, into the public square with them, and we hash it out together there when we must make decisions related to the common good. And while there in the public square, we allow and expect people will speak their own language rather than being forced into some kind of secular Esperanto. Uh, If the reasons we give are compelling, uh, we will find support outside of our own subculture. If they're not, we won't. But no one should be required to learn to speak a foreign language when they enter the public arena. That actually gives the discourse advantage to the secularists because Esperanto turns out to be secular talk. Professor Elstein seems to want neither the sacred public square, which would maintain a privileged position for the Christian faith in American public life, nor the naked public square, where religion is rooted out by secularist hegemony, but rather a civil public square where citizens of all faiths or none engage in public life without fear or favor. Now, this is my summary of her position, as I understand it. I want to now, uh, in something of a response, uh, speak a little bit from my own personal faith community. One of the reasons for this conference, one of the purposes, as stated in our program guide, uh, was to talk about how faith communities relate to this issue of secularism. And in particular, uh, I want to speak as a Southern Baptist. 
As a Southern Baptist, I belong to a tradition uh, which has undergone a major transition at the denominational level from advocacy of that kind of liberal monism that uh, Professor Elstein calls strong separationism. Uh, For many years, this was recognized as the Baptist view. Uh, Today, that's much more contested among Baptists, including Southern Baptists. In fact, I would say Southern Baptists at the denominational level have gone from being strict separationists, which at one point, not in this article, but in another uh, piece, uh, Professor Elstein refers to as extirpationists. (laughs) Interesting term. We've gone from being strict separationists to preferential accommodationists. And... uh, It's probably the case that uh, most Southern Baptists were never really strict separationists, but the denominational elites who wrote the literature and made the speeches and guided the denomination for many years uh, certainly were. And indeed, there is a stream of Baptist life uh, that does represent strict or strong separationism. Now, I happen to think this is is a good development uh, for Baptists and good development Uh, in general, for American public uh, policy. And yet it has created tensions that still have to be resolved. In fact, the tensions in some ways are greater now than they were once when we could simply pass ourselves off as radical or strict separationists. And the tensions are growing for two reasons. One, there is a growing hostility to public religious discourse, and we've talked about that uh, in this session and other sessions of this conference, but also there is a growing range of issues about which Southern Baptists are concerned. Uh, Historically, uh, we entered the public arena, of course, even when we were full strict separationists, when something really important was at stake, such as drinking or gambling or smoking, we, we would take a stand and we would organize a political referenda and things like that. But now we're concerned with far messier things than this. And this has greatly complexified our public religious discourse. Professor Elstein talks about how religious language might most helpfully be used in public discourse. And as you recall, she gives us those four positions. The first one she characterizes as full-bore Christian politics. Now, she's using bore in a different sense of the word, but in Alabama we have something called whole hog, uh, such as a whole hog sausage, which leaves nothing out. And I think that's what she has in mind, full bore Christian politics. The second, uh, prophetic witness. The third, radical dualism. And the fourth, she doesn't give a name for it, but I would try to suggest a possible name and call it a principled prudential engagement. Now, surely these, though, are flexible categories, and they often can be held by the same person on different days of the same week. And I would uh, point out to the fact that uh, it's very difficult sometimes to characterize religious language according to any one of these four uh, points. It was about a week ago, I believe, I turned on CNN. I was traveling somewhere and watched, just turned on to see the news, and I saw there the ambassador of the State of Israel addressing the Security Council of the United Nations following the Israeli incursion into Syria, which was a response to the terrorist attack in Haifa. It so happened that this meeting was convened on Yom Kippur. 
And he apologized and at the beginning of his remarks made a statement of regret that he would not be able to stay for all of the discussion because this was a very holy, sacred day in his faith. And it was necessary for him to leave that meeting and to attend to his religious responsibilities. And he further concluded his remarks by saying something that I found quite remarkable. He said he hoped, of course, that the United Nations Security Council would not give a sanction to what he calls uh, indiscriminate terrorism. He said the world is watching us. And today, especially, God is watching. Well, uh, which God? He didn't say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he said God is watching us. And in saying that, he represented a religious community which gave him a mandate to attend a meeting that required him to absent himself from the Security Council of the United Nations. I'm not sure what to do with that in terms of this typology, but I found it very moving and, um, and very interesting to listen to him say that in just that way. Now, just quickly uh, drawing on local knowledge, I want to talk about two examples from the recent history of Alabama where this tension about religious language in the public square has become more problematic. And because these have both received a good bit of national attention, I don't think I'm being totally parochial to bring them up. About a year ago, the state of Alabama elected a new governor. It was a very close election and a very contentious election, somewhat on the order of the Bush-Gore election. Uh, But it was a conservative Republican, Bob Riley, who won that election. His first major initiative was a statewide campaign to reform the entire tax structure of the state of Alabama with the idea of bringing relief to the poorest and most indigent citizens in our state. And what was remarkable is the language he used in encouraging his fellow Alabama citizens to support this initiative. It was not the language of prudential politics. It was the language of explicit Christian faith. He did not say, you should vote this way because it's the Christian thing to do. But he did say, I am compelled to propose this initiative because I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And because being a follower of Jesus Christ calls upon me to love God with all my heart and life and to do what I can to help the least of these. Now, the fact that some evangelicals are concerned about public life is not really news. 1947, Carl Henry wrote, The uneasy conscience of modern fundamentalism and evangelicals for social action have been around since the 70s, I think. But it is striking that uh, Governor Riley felt called upon to use sort of full bore Christian language in order to propose something that is not often associated either with the Republican Party in Alabama or the Christian right. Now, I'm not sure what it means uh, to report that his proposal was overwhelmingly defeated by the citizens of Alabama. Uh, It may verify Professor Elstein's comment that this isn't the best way to do politics, is to take full-bore Christian language into the public arena, or it just simply may mean that Alabamans are a lot like Californians and they don't want any more taxes. Arnold, where are you? Um, 
Now, the second issue that uh, has been quite notorious in the news is more complex, and I'll just make a comment about it. It relates to Judge Roy Moore, the Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court, and his desire to have posted and displayed in the rotunda of our highest judicial building a monument containing the Ten Commandments. Now, this in some ways has brought a strain within the evangelical community between those who agree with Judge Moore and his basic instinct and those who don't like the way he's handled it. I'm thinking, for example, of the Attorney General of Alabama, who is a devout Catholic and who thinks that Judge Moore is correct in assuming that he should be able to display the Ten Commandments in the rotunda building of the judicial uh, building in Montgomery, but who, in fact, has opposed his defiance of a federal court order that he not do so. The problem with this, from the standpoint of the typology Professor Elstein has given us, is that apparently Judge Moore does not wish to say that if we were to have a Muslim as the chief justice in Alabama, he might very well display the shahada, even in Arabic calligraphy, if he wished. It seems that uh, accommodationism, non-preferential accommodation, would require that kind of plurality of possibilities, whereas we're struggling now with whether a Christian point of view is the one uh, that should prevail. I want to say a word about the debate on homosexuality because uh, it's so current in all of our thinking and in the news every day. Uh, In fact, this morning I picked up a copy of the uh, USA Today at the hotel where I'm staying, and there I read that in Dallas, Texas, 600 churches were represented, Anglican bishops and others, who are threatening to withdraw funding from their national religious body unless the churches and missions agree with their stance on the Bible's view of homosexuality. Well, this is a church conclave. They can say what they wish, and there's nothing wrong with that, of course. But this is not a debate that is limited simply to the question of whether bishops should be ordained who are active gay or lesbian persons. It is a debate that touches on questions of what is marriage before the United States Congress now that touches on questions of employment policies. And it seems to me that evangelical Christians in particular have got to find a way to make a better, more compelling argument in public rather than simply quoting the scripture where we're not very persuasive with those who don't accept our particular view of the authority of the Bible. I appreciate a number of our colleagues, Professor Robert George among them, who have Uh, brilliantly talked about natural law and its possibilities in this regard, and I'm certainly uh, in favor of that kind of approach, but I don't know how convincing it will be in our increasingly postmodernist expressivist culture, the whatever culture, where not only secularism but antinomianism is the rule of the day, whether that nomos is natural or positive. I happened to be in England this summer when the British Church of England was debating the same issue, and I noticed one day uh, a statement from the Queen one Sunday morning, Queen Elizabeth, on the front page of the, all the London papers, uh, saying that she was concerned about division that might come into the church over the way this particular issue was handled, and she hoped that it could be settled in an amicable way. And one week later, uh, the person who had been recommended to be a bishop in the Church of England withdrew his candidacy for that office. 
Now, I have no privy to what goes on in Buckingham Palace and how leaks get out, but it struck me as very interesting that instead of, in that particular case, the church speaking truth to power, we had an example of power, albeit a very titular one, speaking truth, however obliquely and weakly, uh, to the church. Uh, I don't know what implications that has for us, where we don't have queens and kings quite in America, but I think uh, it puts in some ways this whole question of the sacred and the secular, the profane and the religious in a different, in a different light. Now, final comment. We've been concerned throughout this conference, and Professor uh, Elstein is primarily concerned in her paper to uh, bring our attention to those who would squelch dissent and religious speech from the standpoint of liberal monism or indeed from the standpoint of judicial uh, activism. Uh, But there's another concern that I want to at least register, and it is a concern that comes from the other end of this debate, and that is... What happens to the integrity of the church and of faith when we enter into the public arena with these arguments, however persuasive they may be? I'm not here calling for radical dualism, which uh, Professor Elstein refers to fundamentalists and Pentecostals as those who might hold that view. Perhaps a better example of that historically would be the Anabaptists and the Mennonites. That's who I was thinking of. All right. But I do believe that this is a very important issue for those of us who are concerned deeply about the Christian faith itself. And although I am a Baptist by denomination, a Calvinist by theology, the older I get, the more I appreciate Dr. Martinez of Wittenberg, a tradition with which Professor Elstein herself is quite acquainted. And in a, in a conference on faith and the challenges of secularism, Uh, I want to register the danger of the religious community, Christian or otherwise, being co-opted by a secularizing culture in the effort to reform it, to change it, to be engaged with it. I'm not calling for withdrawal. I think engagement is the way to go. But engagement with reserve, engagement with caution, and engagement with our eyes wide open. We must not lose sight of our calling as an intentional community set over against the environing culture, a company of men and women who are called to be faithful witnesses in the midst of invasive ideologies that surround us and also swirl within us. We must not abandon our engagement with the saculum, but at the same time, we must not forget that we are citizens not only of the American Republic or whatever polity we are affiliated with, but also citizens of that city which hath foundations. Thank you. Okay, if you have seat belts, you might want to put them on right now. <laughs> Gene Rivers is a dear friend of mine. I've known him for a long time. He's pastor of Azusa Christian Community in, in Dorchester. He's co-chair of the National Ten Point Leadership Foundation. His work is legendary in Boston, working in uh, the inner city, uh, fighting crime and working with uh, government in some unique par- uh, public-private partnerships that many have tried to copy. And Gene's now traveling the country, trying to help uh, other locations do what they have been so successful in doing in Boston. He has promised that he will be very, very short. Yeah. I do not believe that at all. But here he is, Gene. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, being a black preacher, uh, actually a, a son of the high-octane wing of the low church, <laughs> I am uh, particularly gifted in the sense that I'm merciful. And the hour's late, as we say in the black church, so I'm not going to keep you long. Uh, everybody say amen. 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 <laughs> 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 so, um, and, and, and so I'm, I'm really honored and thankful to Robbie and Byron for the opportunity to share with you and to, you know, participate in, I think, a very important uh, intellectual, uh, philosophic, and cultural uh, discussion around this matter of secularization and the faith community's response. And what facilitates my brevity this evening is the fact that, uh, having read Gene's excellent paper, I find uh, not much of substance to disagree with. Uh, there are, however, a couple of points that I want to highlight that I think are particularly significant in terms of Gene's project. Because what I think, and I want to draw on some experiences here, is that the, 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 the current discussion uh, around church and state and religion and politics is moving into a new phase. Uh, and in some ways, on the planet Earth, as I was joking with Gene, we are moving into a post-secular phase where this discussion is no longer relevant to any of the, the, the life conditions of most people that are living in the inner cities of this country or, or in the inner cities and, and, and areas of poverty around the world. So one of the ways that we keep this in perspective is to understand that our discussion here is a socially endogamous kind of elite intellectual discourse, which in most cases is not fundamentally related to making a significant difference in the lives of the vast majority of people who live on the planet Earth. So we should keep that in perspective. Somebody say, yeah, there, there you go, that's good. Yeah, that, <laughs> thank you. All right, that's number one. And, and that's important to know. Now, the, the discussion... It's absolutely important, and I think that uh, you know, when Gene outlines the various categories, there, there, there's an important point to, to draw on the, 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 the Rawlsian liberal monism uh, point. I, I went to Harvard and majored in philosophy actually as a Pentecostal to prove a point because I wanted to engage the secular intellectual culture and, and resisted the idea that somehow I needed as a function of my faith to be intimidated by you know, Willie Quine, Putnam, Rawls and Nozick. Somehow I believed that my faith was sufficient to equip me to engage these philosophic and you know, intellectual currents in a way which was significant. And moreover, I was concerned with transcending the traditional evangelical you know, uh, you know, orientation on elite secular universities where you huddle and engage in warm milk and cookies, you know, therapeutic you know, religious reinforcement, which rejected and shied away from engaging the larger culture. So there is a challenge around the issue of the secularization process and its politics that you that are engaged in the sort of intellectual project have to engage. And, 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 and the point on Rawls, which is interesting, and we actually had this conversation in Emerson Hall with Rawls when he talked about the privatization of religious discourse because, he, you know, we, we, we wouldn't want those, you know, those kind of pre-orthopithecus Africanus cave-like religious people, you know, imposing their religious dogma upon civilized society. And the point that we raise, and I want to raise it here, is that the way that we deal our discussion 
of this no this bifurcation of religion versus you know politics or religion versus public discourse is to look simply at our history and see King. Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement from 1955 till the time he died transcended that entire discussion. And what's interesting to note analytically and historiographically is that the high liberals, high secular liberals, secular Jewish intellectuals never once challenged the theological, moral, or political validity of King's generous and consistent appropriation of God talk and specific biblical language to, as, as, as a mechanism and an instrument for advancing political and legislative ends. Now, 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 now there's another piece of this, which is very important to note. Part of the reason that King was never challenged by the liberal elite was based in a quiet, you know, barely, rarely articulated racist presumption that the only individuals who would engage in religious discourse and actually take their faith seriously would be people who we presume to be our inferiors. So you know how those people are. Since they're biologically defective, they must embrace religion as an instrument to articulate their, their secular ends. Somebody say amen, right? Amen. So, 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 so what was interesting about the entire discussion is that we have surrendered the historical evidence which is on the side of the conception of a, a continuum between religion and politics and politics and religion which, which, which is embedded in, in the center of the grandest historical moment that the United States has experienced as we sought the, the, the destruction of an apartheid system which had completely divided the society and morally and politically compromised the integrity of the United States Internationally. It was the use of biblical religion which provided the context for civilizing the society, eliminating apartheid, and providing a, 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 a vision of America as a, a, a more beloved community where there could be reconciliation and justice. And so here again, for many of us, we need to bring a more sophisticated and refined historiographic understanding to the formal philosophic political discussion, which is abstracted in the Rawlsian context, divorced from the history. So history actually reinforces our understanding, and the civil rights movement is the most powerful, you know, enriched. You've got the Taylor Branch, two-volume study. You've got David Garrow. There's an enormous body of deep, sophisticated literature, in most cases not written by people of faith, articulating the centrality and the indivisibility of religion, faith, and politics. So we've got to be much more attentive, much more new in terms of our discussion of that. Uh, I got a couple of more points that we can bring this thing home, as we say in the church, right? So, no, 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 no. Now, another part of this that we, we need to sort of look at is that there are various levels to any adequate discussion of the secularization process. There's a secularization process at the philosophic level, there is at the political level, and there is secularization at the cultural level. And, and, and one of the things that has weakened our ability to engage all three levels is that we haven't been sophisticated students of the culture. At the popular level among young people, the MTV, HBO, hip-hop culture is a culture which promotes decay, 
you know, you know, pornography, misogyny, and, and sexism, and racism to the extent to which it demeans the images of inner city people. We have not been attentive in engaging that so that the forces, the corrosive forces of secularization could be fought on the front of culture, which is where the major debates and battles will take place as we try to articulate a vision of the sacred to a younger generation of young people whose lives are now overshadowed with nihilism and, and, and cynicism. There is a cynical quality that goes from Columbine to Harlem, you know, for a whole generation of young people who are bereft of hope because we have not forcefully and, and boldly articulated the sacred truths of our faith and challenged the ideological and philosophic hegemony of, of, of secularist notions which are themselves narrow, inflexible, and dogmatic. So we've got to bring another level of, of a gain to this and, 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 and resist the temptation to assume the subordinate and inferior position in the process of the intellectual and philosophic debate. Culturally, we must expand the parameters of our understanding. Part of the reason that there is this disconnect is that we have had a very, how can I put this, insular conception of the political discussions, disconnected, my, my, my British friend here, Mr. Scruton, Roger Scruton, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, over lunch, we had a discussion. We were talking about aesthetics and music. And I raised to him in talking about the sacred music, the idea of jazz, the sacred music. And he looked at me as though he barely understood how to spell the word. <laughs> God bless him. You know, now I understand that he was Thatcher's Tory, you know, philosopher, but there's no way that you could really capture and engage the larger culture when you've got, for example, a, a, a hip-hop rhythm and blues culture, which has been a secularizing force that has not been part of our understanding of what is going on in the culture in this society. And see, there's a very basic logical point in this regard. All major innovations, artistically, always come from the margins. They never come from the center. They never come from the center. They're always from the margins. Eminem, Jay-Z, most of you don't know what I'm talking about. Jay-Z, <laughs> Eminem, the 50 Cent, represents and a very interesting emergence. And here again, I want to talk about the secularization process in terms of the culture. A couple of points quickly stated. The debate that we're currently in is, in part, a logical outgrowth of the secularization of the civil rights movement. 1965, the black secular student movement rebels against King in the Selma March. It shifts from a faith-based, church-based, pastoral, beloved brotherhood language and discourse to a secular, communist, Socialist ideology, March of 1965. That same year, in the Northern Theater, this is, this is a subtle point here, M Malcolm X is assassinated. With the death of Malcolm X as a religious figure, as a preacher, as a clergyman, we saw the secularization of the black movement on both fronts, in the South 
and in the North, we witness in terms of a periodization process, the secularization of the movement, which in turn influenced the feminist movement, which saw its roots in the civil rights movement, and a whole series of rights-based movements, which when disconnected from faith became a, a, a rights discourse disconnected from responsibilities. It was the, 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 the secularization of the movement that disconnected rights to responsibilities and accountability so that the, 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 the ascendance of a, an, and dominance of the rights-based discourse, which is the heart of, at, at, at the heart of the kind of interest group liberalism, which took over and the emergence of a virtual civil rights industry is rooted in this dimension. Our discussion here is in part been informed by the secularization of the movement and the, and the destruction and decay of politics as we've known it so that the feminist movement and the various other interest group movements and identity politics were rooted in the loss of any sacred understanding that politics was about justice and reconciliation and responsibility. When that died, we went downhill and by 1971 with the Attica Rebellion, black Politics as any ra in any remotely rational form had died, and we saw the ascendance of a civil rights industry. And that class disconnection created the ideological and cultural groundwork for the emergence of hip-hop and rap, which have now conquered the world. Someone has said brilliantly, right, that rap and hip-hop is Africa's revenge on America. <laughs> and there's something very deep here in that we had not analytically paid attention. And so all of our responses are rear guard fallback actions because we never intellectually or culturally engage the culture on the front lines. What Gene has outlined here provides a framework for us to begin a new discussion and to deepen it by bringing a, a more refined historical and everything that Gene has articulated is borne out by the history. In fact, the history argues against the Rawlsian liberal monism because the country at its best has always integrated politics and faith to, to, to use a, a kind of moral and theological vocabulary which spoke to the best in the American experience. What we now need is to take the intellectual engagement and project to another level, philosophic, political, and cultural, so that this discussion, which begins here, is part of a much more comprehensive discussion. Why? I want to raise a couple of other points that Gene touched upon. The philosophic discussion around stem cell research, euthanasia, abortion, you know, and those are key philosophic fault lines where there must be a, a, a frontal philosophic, political, and cultural assault to defend the sacredness of human life. It's a fight to the death. So this will not be a debate where you, you as a, a insecure, pathetic supplicant, as secular modernity and the partisans of anti-religion to accept you at their dinner parties. It's not going to happen. You must be willing to engage in the kind of philosophic, political, and cultural trench warfare to engage vigorously with boldness and confidence. I'll conclude with Peter. First Peter 3.15. Peter, the most notorious of the disciples, toward the end of his life says, But sanctify the Lord God in your heart, and be ready always to give a man an answer concerning the faith which is in you. It is now, at this time in history, an occasion for us to articulate with philosophical rigor and power 
the sacred verities of God, broadly defined, articulated at every level, at the philosophic level, the political and cultural level. And it's my hope that this discussion, which began here today, will result in a much deeper and robust intellectual engagement of the issues as we take the battle into the enemy's territory. Thank you very much. Professor. Okay, Professor Elstein gets a chance to respond here real quickly, and then we'll take some questions from the... Well, I'll make it very, very quick. Uh, the hour is getting late, and I'm sure people are not only hot but hungry at this point. Um, uh, Timothy George's comments, again, I have to thank both of the commentators for their generosity. Um, just two points. One is that he is, of course, correct. Uh, that the categories I set up for characterizing certain rules of engagement or uh, positions on how to engage for believers to engage the political and civic world, that they do bleed into one another and that you would be hard-pressed to find anyone in its absolutely pure form. You could probably find a few instances of such. But they are um, categories that I devised for heuristic purposes to help us uh, sort of clarify what's going on. Um, I do think, I do accept his suggestion that pr principled prudential engagement is probably not a bad way uh, to characterize my fourth position that I couldn't find uh, terms to characterize. One very quick, I, I'm, I'm, um, I love movies, and one example, um, a film came to me as, um, as uh, Mr. George was talking about um, the sort of draconian requirements of stripping people of their faith in order that they engage in certain kinds of activities. Some of you probably saw the film Chariots of Fire, where a uh, one of the members of the British Olympic team, who was also a, a Scottish uh, pastor, and you know they had some in those days some pretty severe requirements. The Scottish Presbyterian Church about the Sabbath, and it turns out that he the draw luck of the draw or ill luck of the draw was such that he was going to be obliged to run on uh, on the Sabbath, and he refused. Um, and they even uh, dragged out the um, uh, Prince of Wales to try to convince him that his loyalty to country should trump uh, this this concern with the Sabbath. Um, and another member, a wiser member of the British Olympic Committee at that point, uh, said, sort of sotto voce, said, um, no, you know, if we force him to run on Sunday and to violate the Sabbath, he's, he's, he's going to lose because you would, you would absolutely strip him of, of his heart and soul, of what it is that, that helps him to be the person he is, including the kind of runner that he is, since this was a gentleman who believed that, that uh, his, his fastness uh, was a gift from God. Um, I think on the issue of what do you risk when, the, what does a believer risk when addressing the public world? Uh, that certainly my position requires a kind of bilingualism. Uh, and I, and I, I think that that's, uh, I think that that's doable, uh, but not on every single issue. That is, I did suggest some issues where, in fact, uh, the full uh, depth of your religious convictions are going to come into play. Now, undeniably, um, the tradition of Roman Catholicism has real strengths in this regard, the history of, of political engagement in and through uh, the language of natural law and so on, sort of centuries of ways to engage that appeal to some notion of right reason, or one might say general revelation, um, so that you don't have to share 
um, Christian belief uh, in order to acknowledge uh, the force of some of the truths that are being brought to bear in order to endorse or to position oneself against uh, a particular um, uh, possibility or policy. Um, I think that other religious uh, traditions, starting within Christianity, have had to come up with their own ways, their own languages of civic engagement. And my, um, my point was that I think there are ways to do that, although the threat uh, that Mr. George talked about, or the, the perils, let me put it that way, must always be acknowledged. Um, on um, um, Pastor um, Jean, I would just say uh, amen, brother. Um, I think that... Um, uh, I, I'm tempted to ask him if he'll just go along with me when I uh, give these talks on the, uh, with the, uh, with a proviso that, that, that he has to follow me because I wouldn't ever want to have to follow him. Um. Bless your heart. We have enough time for two questions. I'm sorry, just two. So we'll take um, one here. Yes. Okay. Let's give preference to students. You're going to have to self-identify. Okay, right here in the front. Here comes a microphone. Hi, my name is Sergio. Just how do we work with this process of translation to the culture, especially to, to the youth who don't understand right. what we're really telling them? Right. Mm -hmm. right. Um, the, the, the translation is rooted in listening and learning the language of the audience to which you wish to address the message. Um, in, in many cases with young people. I mean, the, the hip-hop thing, the younger generation, there is now a younger generation born ye many years after the death of Martin Luther King who speak an entirely different language. Those of us who are culturally competent have to begin to develop the vocabulary and the, the categories and the language, the patois, to communicate. Um, I have a 16-year-old son, and he tutors me on a weekly basis <laughs> to keep me current uh, because uh, the language is evolving. And, uh, and, and literally, I mean, it, 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 among 20-somethings, teenagers, um, it's a different planet. We, young people live, listen, uh, young people live in a very different world. And the profanization of the culture is so much more pervasive now. I mean, I have just remarkable empathy for kids because they are being bombarded at every level in ways that I could not imagine. In the 60s, television went off at midnight, yeah. right? There were only three stations. And, well, there, was, was, and there was family hour. There was family, right. So well, family. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, and, and the music, the language, the themes were fidelity. I mean, Motown music was sane. You weren't talking crazy stuff. Mm -hmm. There was no Marilyn Manson. And it wasn't nuts. Mm -hmm. Now, young people are living in a completely bananas MTV world. And those that are competent and have an interest and an ear for the culture and the language and a burden for young people have to simply take the categories and remake them and refashion them and articulate them in terms that the young people can receive. Uh, very quickly, I would uh, just want to add something to what Jean has said, and that is that it seems to me that there are many um, products, if you will, of the culture, artistic, uh, whether it's in music or in film, which is what I pay the most attention to, um, that although they emerge in a world in which this process of secularization or what Gina's called profanization gone forward are not themselves 
becomes so thoroughly saturated with all of that that you can't find sort of entry points uh, into a discussion that that I think young people who often don't under don't have anything of the of the formation right. religious formation uh, but nevertheless are cued into certain sorts of things about why the stuff that's supposed to make them happy isn't making them happy right. or why the the uh, you know being free all by yourself is maybe not so hot um, and they, and so there are these openings, and I think one has to search for those. And then in a different talk that I gave um, a few weeks ago, I talked about the importance. So I guess this is actually, I talk about this in one of my books, too, that, that, that churches ought to be um, cultural interpreters, ought to be, ought to be ways that the, that yes. places people can go to interpret the culture um, and send these interpretations back into the culture Absolutely. to affect it. So I think there are ways to do that. And if we don't do that, then I think we are caught in our own little universes uh, where we, you know, the milk and cookies image that Jim was talking about, where we try to comfort ourselves with our way of talking, uh, but we insulate ourselves from engagement, and we also, in effect, deny to others whatever wisdom we believe we have. That's right. One last question in the back. Thank you. For the liberal monists, are they more wary of religiously informed political rhetoric, meaning mm -hmm. the language, the words, and the presentation of arguments, or are they more concerned about religiously informed substantive ends, this playing out in the context of offering an exegesis of uh, Genesis, supporting a law to, for the endangered species, or religiously informed uh, support for the Iraq war being that, uh, you know, having a religious homeland, something like that. Um, I would say, I, I don't think you can really separate those two cleanly. It seems to me that, that often the concern about uh, the presentation of arguments and the language in and through which that is done is simultaneously a way to concern oneself with the ends, although it's, it's easier, is it not, in some way to attack the front end uh, because you can just uh, establish a kind of abolition on certain forms of speech, I suppose in the hope that certain kinds of uh, proposals or policies or normative positions on certain issues that would flow from the use of that speech would not then follow, would not, would not eventuate. Uh, so I think it's a concern with both. But you obviously can't stand forward and say, well, we, we can't, we've got, you know, we want to stop people from promoting certain ends that they seek. So I think an easier way, in a sense, to, to move in that direction. And you don't like where you think the ends are going to be is to is to try to interdict at, in the very first moment the forms of speech that you believe are going to lead to ends that you do not share. Um, so I would put those two together. And, and when I said the Washington Press Corps was utterly befuddled with the position that the evangelical Christian group I talked about supporting the Endangered Species Act with the reasons they were giving is that they've got so many stereotypes and prejudices about religious believers that they couldn't imagine that these people cared about environmental issues or, or you know, the, the Bengal tiger um, and so on because they've got, they've got this view that all those people care about is abortion or homosexuality uh, and that's it. They don't care about anything else. They're just absolutely fanatics and they don't think about other issues. So anything that challenges those stereotypes I think is entirely worth well, too. Well, Robbie's going to have a last word for us, but I did want to say let's have a big round of applause for this great panel. Well, I'm very grateful. Thank you, uh, 
Jean and uh, Timothy and Jean. Uh, and thank you, Byron. Uh, that was a terrific uh, panel. I just wish we could go uh, on and on and on. In fact, uh, Jean, why don't you just serve on every panel? Can we just <laughs> bat clean up on that? Uh, I I'm going to be giving myself the pleasure tomorrow uh, evening as we conclude of thanking a whole lot of people who helped to make this uh, conference possible. But I want to take a moment now to thank uh, our wonderful students and recent alumni who have uh, just been terrific at pitching in for the legwork to put a conference like this on. They don't get to stand up here and get uh, much attention and applause, but they have done a wonderful job in working with my terrific staff, whom I helped yesterday. But I wanted to thank uh, our student and recent alumni volunteers. Uh, now, the reason I'm doing that now is we're, we'll be losing one, Danielle uh, Mark. Uh, uh, the trouble with uh, having a weekend conference is uh, our observant Jewish participants and friends will be leaving the conference at this time. Uh, for the uh, Sabbath. This uh, day in particular, it's a particularly special event for the Jewish community because it also begins the festival of Sukkot. So to our Jewish friends who will be leaving the conference uh, at this time, I say Shabbat Shalom and Shana Tovah. Well, uh, very good. We've had a wonderful day. We reconvene tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock right here. Uh, Professor John Finnis of Oxford University will be uh, giving the opening paper tomorrow in, on uh, uh, law policy and secularism with responses by Father Richard John Newhouse, uh, uh, Jeffrey Stout, uh, and Francis Beckwith. So see you uh, all tomorrow morning. Mm -hmm.